All right, so we've come to the end of uh, Luke chapter 19 and in our journey through the Gospel Luke. So go ahead and turn there if you're not there already. Um, if you weren't here with us last week, I'll just give you a couple pieces of information about our passage that will uh, uh, help you understand where we're, we're going today. And in and, and 25 through 44, we saw uh, in that passage where, where Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, right? Over the hills, down the Mount of Olives, through Bethany, through Bethphage, and getting the donkey that wasn't his, and, and coming into, the, into it, and the people rejoice, and they worship, and they delight in the works of God. So you can go back and you can listen to that. You can see that. That's Palm Sunday um, right there in the, in the, in the passage so, uh, so you understand what's, what's happening there. And they, they blessed him. They worshipped him, uh, as you can see in the passage. Um, and so what we see going on here is, is Jesus is coming into his own, right? He's coming into Jerusalem because he is the king, all right? And as the king and the son of God, he is coming into his own to claim a people for himself. Um, and he's taking that place as, as the king. Um, and, and all of these things have been leading up to, up to this. Now, this morning, however, we're, we are going to still see Jesus, who is the king, who is in Jerusalem, and now is moving into a particular part of Jerusalem, the temple. Um, and we will still see, just as we saw last week, that he is sovereignly in control, sovereignly uh, in, in control, and then also sovereign in mercy, but today he is also still sovereign in control, even though he is coming into the city and into the place uh, that, that kills prophets. He's coming into this particular city. Um, and, and this passage probably takes place on Monday of, of the, the Passion Week or, uh, and such. So, so just know the, the, uh, uh, what's, what's happening there. So, so let's, read, uh, let's read this text together, starting in verse 45. It's a short passage, but starting in verse 45, let's read this together. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Not Roberts, that's me, not me. Den of robbers. Verse 47. And he was teaching them daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the, the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do, for the people were hanging on his words. Amen. And this is the, the reading of the Word of God. And so may His Word move into our hearts this morning. We would hear it as holy, inspired, and inerrant for His glory and our joy. Amen. So again, this traditionally takes place on, on, on Monday. Now, did you notice, and, and this is where in our service, by the way, you have to pay attention to things. Did you notice what the text was that our brother read for us at the very beginning in Malachi chapter 3? Let me read just that first verse again. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I am sending my messenger, 
that's J-O-B, John the Baptist, or J-T-B, John the Baptist, and he will prepare a way for me, okay? And the Lord whom you seek, Jesus, will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, saying to the Lord, says the Lord of hosts. And, and continually, as he read in those verses, talked about a refiner's fire that's coming to the people. What does a refiner's fire do? It cleans, it purges, it purifies. And, and this is the, again, this prophetic uh, messianic uh, expectation of Jesus that he would suddenly come into his temple and clean house. That's what we just read this morning in, in, in Luke 20 or Luke 19 at the end of the chapter there. Now, again, all four Gospels record this event taking place. Uh, Luke is kind of the tamed one, gives kind of the tamed Jesus version in, in all of them because um, all of them have uh, different things that, uh, 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 that, that describe it. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, John chapter 2 talks about it as well. So he, he talks about it a little bit earlier. Could have been a second time that he cleansed the temple, or actually a first time this was a second time. But either way, somewhat of the, the same kind of thing happens. Um, now, the temple uh, is, this is known as Herod's temple at this particular time. Right? Let's, get a little, let's get a little history in there to understand what's going on. This is known as Herod's temple. And it's known as Herod's temple because he's the one who rebuilt it. Uh, he renovated it and, and actually tried to restore it to a, a greater glory, right? So after the, the Babylonians came in and absolutely destroyed the one that Solomon uh, built, uh, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, when they came back and Ezra brought it back, he rebuilt the temple, but it was nowhere near it's, it's, uh, it's past glory and, and grandeur. It was nowhere near it. So when Herod rebuilt it, he rebuilt it in a way that was going to make it just ridiculous. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. Um, and, and he did it to buy favor with the Jews and probably with God. Now, in comparison, just to give you an idea, Solomon's temple was, was less than half the size of Herod's temple. It was less than half the size. So think about that. How it, was, it was small. It started around um, 20, uh, or, uh, 20 B.C., and eventually it was completed around 62 A.D., 62 to 64 A.D. So several years, like almost 80 years to complete this thing. It was huge. It was a massive undertaking. It took uh, several decades to, uh, to complete. And remember, this is about the time of A.D. 30-ish with, uh, with Jesus being in, in the temple. And remember last week we talked about how the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. So that thing was only built for eight to six years before the Romans came in and flattened it. Again, this massive thing that Herod built. The, the temple was the epicenter of all of Jewish life. It was the center of all Jewish life and culture because it was the very place that that all Jews recognized that, that this was the main place where we worship the Lord. This is where we come as the Jewish nation, as Israel, to worship God, because this is where God has said He dwells. Now, there were synagogues at the time. We remember Jesus went into the different synagogues, but the synagogues didn't come about uh, until, I think it was after the Babylonian 
uh, uh, exile. So when they were exiled, they needed still places to worship because they were dispersed. But, the, but those uh, um, synagogues were not temple replacements. They didn't have sacrifices at those synagogues, only at the temple itself. That's why it was so important for, for Ezra to rebuild the, the temple. They needed a place for those, uh, uh, for those uh, atoning sacrifices to be, to be, to be made. So the temple was the place where all sacrifices were to be made. Every day they were always offering sacrifices before God. During the various feasts, they were offering special sacrifices before God. During the the Day of Atonement, the, the yearly sacrifice where they would come to atone for the corporate sins of the whole nation of Israel. It was a place of, of public prayers and, and worship. It was a place for, for teaching, public teaching and, and learning and other special things that happened throughout the year. It was the center of Jewish life. And nothing was more important or as sacred to the Jews than the temple. I mean, think about its role throughout the, throughout the Old Testament and then even in the New the role of the temple in the, in, the, in, in the New Testament. Think of how it's been such a role even in the Gospel of Luke. Right? First, first it was in the holy place in the temple, which is right next to the Holy of Holies, where the angel Gabriel announced the birth of the Messiah's forerunner, John the Baptist, to the old man Zechariah. He told him, your, your barren wife was going to conceive, Zechariah. It was there in the temple. It was in the courts of the temple that another old man named Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and he, and he praised God because he was told he would not die until he saw the Lord's anointed. And he blessed that child and he prophesied it over that child in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him and prophesied right there in the temple. It was again in the temple where, where Jesus was only about 12 years old. And we hear his first words to his parents that he grasped his understanding of being the Messiah when he said, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house in the temple? And then several years later, as Jesus began his ministry, after he was baptized and affirmed by the Holy Spirit and the Father and the voice of, the voice of God, he was led into the wilderness. And he was tempted by Satan. And Satan took him to the, to the very pinnacle, the top of the temple. And he tempted him, jump down from here, because surely God would send his angels and rescue you. So think about all these various times that that we've seen the importance of the temple even in the Gospel of Luke. And again now, Jesus comes into the temple fulfilling the prophecy, the Messianic expectation prophecy from Malachi chapter 3, coming suddenly to refine, to clean out the temple in order that he may teach and proclaim the Gospel the next week. So I, I have three things that I want you all to see this morning about Jesus and, and the temple. And I think they have huge implications uh, for us and the gospel and what we see throughout the rest of the, the New Testament. So as we consider how Jesus cleansed the temple um, and how he teaches the temple, so these are the three points, how Jesus cleansed the temple, teaches uh, in the temple, and how he supersedes the temple, I want us to pay close attention in those particular points as we see the meaning for you and me in those uh, in those points. So the first point is how Jesus cleanses the temple. How Jesus cleanses the temple. 
Verse 45 pretty much sums up what Jesus does. And again, like I said, it's kind of a tamed version of, of, what, of what Jesus does. He enters the temple and he began to drive out those who sold. But Matthew says that he went in there and he overturned the tables. He, over, he flipped over the tables of the money changers and, and those who, who were sitting in the seats who were selling pigeons. And in Mark, it says that he, would, he wouldn't even let people pass through certain parts of the temple that were trying to cut through and make shortcuts in places that they shouldn't with their animals. And, and John probably gives us some of the most um, striking language about Jesus. That's, that's the one where Jesus makes a whip and chases people out with a whip. Chasing people out with a whip, he's flipping over tables and hollering. I mean, have you ever seen a table get flipped over? That's a pretty, pretty violent thing that takes place. If it happens at a restaurant, you know, all of a sudden, none, none of us will think that something's okay. We would think something is wrong. Something awkward's going on. Something crazy's going on. I need to pay attention to what's happening. This is a very, in a sense, violent act that Jesus is doing. But it wasn't uncontrolled. It wasn't an outburst or, or rage. But what we see is a whole other side of Jesus. You know, we, we've seen examples of the, the soft, gentle, meek Jesus. Last week we saw how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. In previous passages we saw how Jesus called the little children to come to him. But in, in this text, Jesus flipping over tables and, and casting people out with, with whips and yelling at them, this is Jesus in a controlled strength. This is what we call real biblical masculinity, where there's strength, to do what is right, and yet also the strength to be meek, to be kind, to be compassionate. Strength and courage that Jesus uses not for himself, not to defend himself, but strength and courage, or courage in defense of others. The defense of the holiness of God. The defense of the holiness of his Father. He flipped tables and he drove everyone out of the temple to clean it. I think this means that Jesus was quite serious about what he thought was taking place in the temple was wrong. Right? I mean, that's pretty evident. He didn't come in and passively tell his disciples, guys, don't do this. I mean, this is weird. You shouldn't have a flea market in the temple. No, he flipped over tables, and used a whip to drive people out. And why? Why? Well, it's because all the things that we said a little bit earlier about the temple. The temple was the place that, that was set apart as the place where God's people would worship God. It was the place where God himself said, this is where I will dwell and my people will come to me and they will worship in the ways that I have told you how to worship. It was a 
physical reminder of God dwelling with his people. But what did they do? They turned it into a flea market or a farmer auction. And this was all sanctioned by the Jewish leaders, by the way. Right? It was all sanctioned by the Jewish leaders to sell uh, overpriced sacrifices, to, to price gouge people, to exchange their money, because this is the money changers part that, that, uh, um, that I think it was Matthew that was talking about, how he, he overturned the tables of the money changers. You see, back in Exodus, God said that everybody who's coming to offer a sacrifice in the temple had to come with a temple tax, a half of a shekel. Well, guess what? Most of the world's not using shekels anymore. They're using minas and drachmas and all those other things. So when you come in, you have to exchange your money. Well, guess who was making money on the exchange? The money changers and the temple leaders. When I was, um, uh, when I was down in Honduras years ago now, uh, when we got to the airport, uh, when you first get there, it's, there's a bank there for you to exchange your money, and you're kind of told that's where you're supposed to change your money, is that the banks don't do with the nefarious dudes walking around with wads of cash. Uh, so we exchanged our money there, but it was on the way back. Uh, we got back, and the bank was closed, and here we are with you know, tons of money from Honduras. Honduran money, not tons, but you, know, you carry a lot when, uh, when you exchange it. And all that there was left was the almost like mobster-looking dudes with wads of cash in their, money, in their wallets, right? Uh, and, and so those are the only people, so we had to just kind of take it on the chin with their exchange rate. I mean, you lost some bucks with, with, these, with these guys. Um, but everybody lost some money there. When I exchanged my money, though, the guy gave me $60 back more than, than what he was supposed to. So I took that money and repaid, <laughs> repaid all the other guys. And as we got on the plane, I started thinking to myself, it's like, if this guy was working for a mobster in Honduras, the next day, he's going to be toast, right? And I hope not. Lord, I hope not. But man, uh, anyways, I paid back everybody, everybody else. But, but this is what was happening, right? You come to the temple. You need your money exchange. You're already there. You traveled. What do you need? You need, your, you need your animals. You need your money changed over. And guess who was making a ton of money? Everybody but the worshipers, right? Even, like I said, the Sanhedrin who were in charge of the temple. They were making a lot of money because... Who are selling licenses probably to be in there and sell things? Oh, you need a license to sell in there. And they were taking their cut as well. So, so no wonder Jesus was flipping over tables and driving them out. And this is something that has been happening for centuries now. And all of it wasn't right. They turned worship, a heart work, a heart uh, transformation that worship does, and they turned it into a a business transaction, a, a, a duty. It was all about money. It was not about the heart. It was all about money. It was all about getting done what you needed to get done and then going home, getting your stamp of approval and going home and doing whatever you want. And it gets even worse, by the way, because where it gets even worse is where do we suppose that flea market farm auction was taking place in the temple? Where if you were a Jew, you're not going to do it in the places that you need, you would like, you, you know, where you worship, that are sacred to you. So let's put it in the court of Gentiles. And that's where they had it. They had it in the, the court of Gentiles, which was the only place in the whole entire temple where non-Jews and foreigners could come and pray and meditate. And all there is nothing but farm animals and money changers and a, a flea market all around them. 
So this is why Jesus did what he did. But look at what Jesus said. Look at verse 46. He said, my house shall be a house of prayer. But he says, it is written. My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, he is quoting from two Old Testament texts here when he says it is written. Right? And we're going to unpack those two texts, particularly the first one. Um, the first is Isaiah 56. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over to Isaiah 56, because I really want you to see what he says in Isaiah 56. And Isaiah 56, verse 7, is where Jesus is quoting that first um, phrase there. Um, and, and when you get there, notice something about that section in Isaiah 56. Notice what it says there, actually, as the, the title of that section. That in Isaiah 56, in this little section, was all about the salvation of what? Of who? What does it say? Of who? Of foreigners. Of Gentiles. So in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, it was about the salvation of foreigners. In Isaiah 56, verse 7 says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all peoples. You know, when Solomon first dedicated that, that first temple, in his prayer, and he, he prayed that, that the temple would be a place where not just the Jews would see the glory of God and, and God dwells with them, and, but, but he prayed that, that foreigners would recognize and see the glory and the goodness of God. And in that that would draw them in. And, and, and throughout the centuries, there's been pockets of that, of, of, of Gentiles and unbelievers and foreigners that would come to Israel to see what was, what was special about them. It was to be a place where all peoples of the earth would know his name and fear him in the temple. The temple, you see, was not just about Israel, but it was a beacon of evangelism. It was a beacon of evangelism to the Gentiles. And that's what Jesus is saying here in Isaiah 56. And it's so apparent when they are opening this flea market in the court of Gentiles. Now, you're with me in Isaiah 56. Look at verse 3. He says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself with the Lord. So these are foreigners trying to join themselves with God. To the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Why? Because it's not true. God welcomes them into be his people. And let not the eunuch, someone who's maimed, someone who's disfigured, say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Look down to verse 6. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, holds fast to my covenants. I love that, right? Because this is foreigners uh, uh, following the Lord. Verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain. What's that? And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted to my altar, for my house should be called a house of prayer for who? All peoples. This wasn't just a glimpse into the Gentile inclusion in the New Testament. This was something that was to be taking place in the Old Testament. But in a greater way, of course, it takes place in the New Testament with Christ. Now, you have places like, or in the Old Testament, you have people like Ruth and you have people like Rahab. Um, Gentiles being brought in. So the, so the great welcome and acceptance of foreigners wasn't, wasn't just a concession. 
It wasn't an afterthought, but it was a fulfillment of what the Lord's house was always meant to be. The temple was to be a beacon of devotion to the Jews that was shining out into the darkness of the Gentiles to what? Draw them in. To draw them in. But this wasn't happening. And, and this very fact that the flea market and where it is was a prime example that they completely forego that whole idea of drawing others in. They drove out the Gentiles from the grace of God. But we know that it will only be complete and fulfilled through the shed blood of Christ. Now, look at the, the there's a second reference. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to go short on this one. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. You have made it a den of robbers. Now this, excuse me, in Jeremiah chapter 7, this comes from, comes from one of Jeremiah's speeches to, to, the, to the nation of Israel. And, and in this speech, he was, it was a speech about the temple. And he was warning Israel who who had embraced so much wickedness in their way of life, right? So, so it's, it's kind of that, you know, six days a week you do whatever you want, and then seven days a week you come to church and you praise God. That's the kind of thing that they were doing, right? Six days a week they were doing whatever they wanted, including offering sacrifices to, to idols and, and, and false gods, but yet they were still trying to meet their religious obligations of, of, of being uh, Israelites, and all the while believing that it was the temple, because of being an Israelite and possessing the temple, that that would keep them safe. That that was keeping them safe. But what is uh, Jeremiah pointing out here? He's pointing out their, their hypocrisy. Because in what was good, created as the, the temple of God, where God's people dwell, where the Gentiles are to be welcomed into this, into this place, you've made it a place of exclusion and hypocrisy, and you live a life of wickedness. And yet you think you come to worship, and that makes everything okay. And this is what Jesus says, what uh, actually Jeremiah says. Jeremiah says it's going to be destroyed, and it does. And Jesus says it again, that it's going to be destroyed, and it does. In a sense, God removes this idol from their midst. And there's a level of hypocrisy then in what Jesus is saying in his statement, that this is to be a place of prayer, not a den of robbers. There's a level of hypocrisy here that should warn us as the church today. In the church culture today, does God see in us this morning true devotion? Does God see in you, does God see in me true devotion in, in worship? Or does he see just religious motions or tradition? And we would be fools, as Israel was, to, to believe that just because we are associated with the things of God, and we have the things of God, and we know things about God, that that are the things that will make us safe before Him. We would be fools to think that. I think one blatant ex uh, example of this, and I think it goes well with our passage, is how much Christians put their confidence in things that they shouldn't, namely buildings. Namely buildings. We've learned to call them the house of the Lord. But are they truly the house of the Lord? Or are they just buildings? 
Are they really the church or are they just buildings? If you've ever been rebuked by someone because you've made the mortal mistake of bringing a coffee cup into a sanctuary or worn flip-flops or even worse than that, you had the, uh, the audacity to have a hat on your head, then you know what I'm talking about. What is the temple of God now? Where does God dwell now? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16 tells us this. It says, do you not know that you, the church, not the building, but the people, the individuals, that you are, the, you are God's temple? Why? Because it's where God's Spirit dwells in you. So if Jesus has come into your life, if Jesus has come into your heart, then he has cleansed it. And he has then set his spirit upon us and, and in you and, and dwelling in us. Why we can sing songs like Jesus is mine. Because he is in us. And then therefore that makes us part, that is the temple of God. A place does not make us safe. A building cannot be our confidence. It cannot be our devotion. It cannot be in a building. But our confidence, our safety, our devotion, our prayers are to be in Christ and in Him alone. Jesus is not a church custodian who just cleans church buildings. But Jesus cleans his what? He cleans our hearts. He purifies our, our hearts. From what? From all evil devotion and wickedness. Has Jesus cleansed your heart? Does he dwell in the temple of the Lord? In your heart? Secondly, I want us to see this morning is how Jesus uses the temple now that it has been cleaned out. Now that it has, in a sense, been restored, purified. And it's interesting is we, we see that in the following verses, 47 and 48. It, the temple becomes his pulpit. It becomes the place where Jesus preaches and he teaches. Now, despite the the harsh reality of what Jesus did, just did there. And some people really struggle with that, by the way. Um, I don't think they understand good masculinity, maybe. Um, but there is a glorious outcome of all that. Of all that action. Of all of that flipping over tables and driving the wicked people out. The court of Gentiles being restored as a place of devotion, worship, evangelism, all signs of what is to come. But he cleansed the temple as another mark of what Jesus does in the heart of his followers. It's another mark, and that is, and that is he teaches. He gives, us his, he gives us his word. Now, during the, this, the following week, the Passion Week, uh, Jesus every day goes where? He goes to the temple. And he goes to the temple to do one thing, to teach. So in a sense, he's kind of coming in, and, he's, and he cleans up where he's going to preach and where he's going to teach for the rest of the week in order to be that what? That offering 
on Friday. He restores it. He restores the temple. All the distractions, all the wickedness gone. We, and all the way through Luke 21, we see how he teaches. All the way till probably Wednesday afternoon. The temple becomes his pulpit to teach. Verse 47, he says, and he was teaching what? Daily in the temple. Right? The chief priests and the scribes, again, coming against him. The principled men of the, peop of the people were seeking to destroy him. But as they did, they couldn't find anything that they could do. Why? Because they were scared of people. For all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus used the temple as the place where he would teach, where he would preach, and where he would disciple. It's also where he faced opposition, as we just saw there. In a sense, these, these two verses are, are kind of a summary of what's going to take place over the next uh, couple days. And then it bookends, actually, in chapter 21, verse 37. You can look, with, look ahead and look at that with me. And he says this. He says, uh, Luke kind of repeats a little bit of what he says earlier. He says, and every day he was teaching in the temple, but by night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came into the temple to what? To hear him. So what does this mean? Jesus has cleansed the temple so that he would have a place to teach, to preach, to proclaim the gospel, the word of, of God. And even though this, this cleansing was only going to be temporary, doesn't that point to something greater? The greater work of what the gospel does in, in our own hearts? That even though the, the temple had been reclaimed temporarily, appropriated for his teaching temporarily by the Messiah, but doesn't this point to something greater, how the Messiah comes into our hearts, cleanses us, restores us, makes us new in order to do what? To be taught, to grow, to be sanctified, to be shaped and fashioned by the word of God. He makes us new by the Word of God. Now, we haven't gotten into all the particular things that he talks about, and we will, we will over the weeks, in the coming weeks. But he gives us a little simple phrase in, in chapter 20, verse 1, which we'll get to next week. He says one little word that Jesus was doing. What was he doing? He was preaching the gospel. I love that. And why? Why is Jesus preaching the gospel in the temple? Because... The people need the gospel. His people need the gospel. We need the gospel. The people of God are not shaped by temples or buildings. And if they are, if they are influences and such, then they are nothing but idols to us. But the people of God are not shaped by temples, they're not shaped by buildings, they're not shaped by the, the personalities of their leaders, but the people of God are shaped by one thing only, and that is the Word of God. That is the, the marker of, of what people are God's people and what people are not God's people. Have they been shaped by the Word of God? Have you been shaped by the Word of God? Jesus is the Word of God. And the Word of God came into the temple that day, and He cleansed it out so that the Word of God would preach and teach the Word of God. To preach the gospel. And if the Word of God is Jesus' priority, then what's the priority of His people? It's the Word of God. 
It's the word of God that it would become more and more evident in our hearts and our lives and that we would grow in it. That's why we, 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 we do everything in our gatherings around the word of God. We read it, we proclaim it, we sing it, we pray it, and we sing it some more. Because it's who we are to be shaped by. It's what we need. It's what I need. It's what Jesus is doing. He cleanses us and he gives us the word of God. He shapes us. He disciples us through the word. And that's it. I love that point. Lastly, I want you to see that even though Jesus has come and he cleansed the temple temporarily, and he teaches the word of God in just, just for a week. But I want you to see that Jesus supersedes the temple. That Jesus is greater than the temple. That Jesus is better than the temple. That Jesus is the fulfillment of what the temple was supposed to be. And was given to be. Jesus is already being rejected by the Jewish leaders. They're totally set against him. The text tells us they want to what? Destroy him. Right? I mean, if someone says to you that they want to destroy you, it really only means one thing. They either want you dead or they want you so boxed in and so marginalized that no one can hear you, no one will talk to you, no one wants to be with you. They're totally set against him. And soon Jesus would be rejected and ejected from the temple. And even though everything seems to be good now on Monday... Just as he prophesied, we'll see this text next week, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Why does he say that? We'll talk about this mostly a lot more next week, but that is because he is the cornerstone of our faith. Christ himself is the cornerstone of our faith, not the cornerstone of a temple. Why? Because he supersedes the temple. Solomon's temple... And before that, the tabernacle, again, were, were focuses of God's dwelling. It's where God tented with them. It's where God dwelt with them. But the cross and the resurrection changed all that. Back in John chapter 2, when, when they talk about this particular, uh, this particular event, um, Jesus is asked the question after he goes in there and he kind of just blows things up, you know, uh, they're like, why are you doing all this? What, what, what authority, what sign do you give to do all this? And this is Jesus' answer. He says, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. And why is he saying that? He's, he's saying this is because he supersedes the temple. Because all they were thinking about was bricks and mortar and stone. But Jesus is talking about himself and his own body and his resurrections. And his resurrection, excuse me. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Literally, that means he tabernacled with us. He tented with us. He pitched a tent in your yard and is hanging out. He tabernacled. He, he, he templed among us. Why? Because he is God's dwelling among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Stephen, in his sermon before the Sanhedrin, right before he was stoned, he talks about this very fact. 
Acts chapter 7, verses 44 through 47, was all about the temporary nature of the tabernacle and the temporary nature of the Solomon or Solomon's temple. And all of those things were pointing to something greater because verse 48, he says, Listen, guys, uh, uh, yet the God does not dwell in houses made by hands. They were offended by that and they stoned him. The Apostle Paul tells us that all believers have become members of the heavenly temple by virtue of their importance in Christ. Listen to this. This is Ephesians 2. He says, In him you also are being built together as building blocks. We're being built together into what? A dwelling place for God. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so through preaching, through teaching of the Word of God, the church is being built up into God's dwelling through His Holy Spirit, His temple. Let me show you one more, and I think this is just amazing. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's dwelling with, with us. He's made us into a people. Even Gentiles have been brought in, and he's dwelling with us. That God will be with us. We will be his people, and he himself will be with us. I know this is getting long, but look at verse 22 through 24. I think they have it on the screen. You can just look. Continuing in, in Revelation 21, this is amazing. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. <laughs> I didn't see any buildings. For its temple is what? Is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine in. For it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. It's not a building. So in the temple, in all of its incomplete, all of its shadow kind of ways that the temple was for Israel, we see in Christ how he far exceeds and supersedes the temple. He is the presence of God dwelling with us. He is the presence of God dwelling with us. He is our only access and way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes through to, through to God but through me. He is our only and final atoning sacrifice. He is our mediator. And he is our right standing. If he be for us, who can stand against us? All of these things were just shadow representatives in the, in the temple itself. 
There were only shadows. There was still limited access. Only certain people can get into certain places. The temple was completely corrupted by man. But Jesus, he is the true temple. And if he is the true temple, then he is our everything. He has cleansed the temple. He has cleansed us, and he dwells with us. He taught in the temple, and therefore now the word of God is teaching in us and conforming us to be more and more like him from one degree to the next by the word of God. And as he supersedes the temple, we look to him as our presence, as the very presence of God for everything. We look to him as our only access to God. We look to him as our atoning sacrifice. We look to him as our mediator. We look to him as our right standing before God and our righteousness. We look to him for our salvation. We look to him for our very lives. Jesus supersedes the temple. cleanses the temple, he makes it anew, and he teaches like he does in us. And isn't it amazing that 2,000 years later, give or take, whatever, how much, isn't it amazing that in the same paradigm by which Jesus did those things that day and that week, that he is still doing in us today? That he's still doing these things for us today. Jesus does not dwell in temples or houses, but he dwells in our hearts, the hearts of those who are his. And as Jesus drove out sin in the temple that day and wickedness that day, are there sins? Are there things, idols, this morning that through the Word of God that the Holy Spirit is driving out? Those, those secret things, those secret sins, those fears, those anxieties, those jealousies, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, and so many other things. You know, very often, it doesn't take long for our hearts to look a lot like the temple did that day, does it? And if it does, would you pray that the Savior would mercifully flip the tables of idolatry and sin in our hearts and drive it out with a whip? Because those things are not our friends. That they are the very enemies that separate us from true, undefiled worship in the house of the Lord. That was made for prayer, our hearts, our lives, for devotion. We're made for prayer and devotion unto the God, but so often we make it into a den of robbers. Would, you, would we pray, would you pray that the Lord would mercifully do that? And though painful as it is, as hard as that may be, we see the good because the gospel will be preached and our hearts will be restored to him. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful for the word, how you teach us, how you conform us to it. And so we pray these things in, in Christ's name that our Savior would see our hearts as he does. Let's, let's not be confused or doubtful that he does not see clearly our hearts. And we pray that our Savior would come and drive those things out and cleanse the temple. And Father, how easy it is for us to, to make it into a den of robbers and to, to believe the very fact that we can live in certain ways and indulge certain things and then go a whole other direction one day of the week or two days of the week or, or certain times of the week. And so we, we need the gospel. We need the, how it restores us, how it shows us what it means to be forgiven in Christ because that's our only right standing. That's the only way we can be atoned. We're not, we're not atoned because we go out and we try to do better. But we are atoned because of the work of Christ, because of the cross, because of the blood of Christ that was, that was spilt on our behalf. He is our standing. He is our righteousness. And He alone is who is pleading on our behalf this morning. And so, God, we embrace these things. We look to these great truths. Help us as we discern through your Spirit in our, our short time of response. Just let it be used, oh God, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.